Welcome back to part two of the latest episode of The Yoke with Doke. In this three-part episode, we talk with Tom Doke and his associates Eric Iverson, Brian Schneider, as well as shapers Kai Golby and Blake Conan. If you haven't listened to part one of the podcast where we detail how Renaissance golf design works, check it out. In this episode, we talk about George Thomas and the work that Renaissance has done at iconic Bel Air Country Club. I have put together some before and after comparisons on the website on the podcast page that should help the listening experience. So check that out at thefriedegg.com backslash podcasts. And you should see a variety of old aerials and then before and after photos. Enjoy this podcast and look for part three to come out on Wednesday of this week. Thanks. Candid Doak doesn't pull any punches. How do I make natural looking contour? Hire the biggest fool in the village and tell him to make it flat. First overrated, underrated, rough. Terribly overrated over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to part two of the latest Yoke with Doak. On this episode, we've still got the Renaissance golf team with us. We've got Tom, as always, Eric Iverson, Blake Conant, Kai Golby, and Brian Schneider. And for this edition, we are talking about the, their current project at Bel Air Country Club, George Thomas, the architect, and Southern California Golf. Tom, welcome back. Thanks, Andy. Nice to be at Bel Air. Yeah. Still nice to be here. Even with the rain. <laughs> this is the first day. I'm told, you know, this is, it's January. I'm told this is the first day it's rained in LA since last March. I escaped Chicago winter and it, the day before I came out here was like the first day above 10 degrees in 10 days or something like that. And I escaped then, Charleston winter. There was about five inches of snow on the ground when I left yesterday. I don't feel bad for you. <laughs> it's 60 today, I'm told. <laughs> but then I looked at the forecast. I'm like, wait, rain? <laughs> so um, to kick this uh, podcast off, I think it'd be great for everybody to learn a little bit about George Thomas, the architect, you know, a revered architect that didn't do a lot of work. So Tom, uh, tell us a little bit about who George Thomas was. Well, He's an architect that's, that's really well known, even though he only did a few courses, which has a lot to do with the fact that he wrote one of the great books on golf course architecture back in 1927. Um, he grew up in Philadelphia. Um, family was from back east, and uh, he was a good golfer, good amateur player, and was buddies and played golf all the time with a bunch of guys who are now famous as golf course architects. A.W. Tillinghast, uh, George Crump, who built Pine Valley, uh, Hugh Wilson, who built Marion, uh, William Flynn, who 
followed up Wilson at Marion and then built a lot of the best courses around Philadelphia. They were just all golfers, like this group sitting with me today that, you know, like to play golf together and talk about architecture back when it wasn't really a thing. And just, boy, this golf course isn't good enough. We should, we should do something better than this. And then they wound up going out and doing it, you know, each of them on his own. Uh, all of them had a little input into Pine Valley and what Crump did at Pine Valley. Um, and then Thomas, Thomas, his first, I guess he was like a green chairman at one of the clubs in Philadelphia that Donald Ross built. So that's how he learned something about how you build a golf course. And his first project on his own, or maybe a second, was to go out and build a course on his on his family's farm, which is Brian. Do you know what course that is now? I can't. Oh, White Marsh Valley, White Marsh Valley, where they used to have the tour event in the '60s and '70s. It's a tight little thing now. I can't. When you go there now, it's hard to imagine they had a tour event because it's on like 110 acres. <laughs> it's really tight. And there's there's one hole that the green is right next to the road. I, I don't know how they played that for a tour event. I don't know if they closed the road or what. So he did that. But then I, I don't know exactly what circumstances, but right after the end of World War One, after he got back from serving in World War One, he came to California instead of staying back in Philadelphia. And... So he came to Los Angeles just as California was starting to boom. And when most of this area now that's so incredibly developed was incredibly undeveloped. I mean, you look at pictures of the land that they built LA Country Club on in 1920, and it was like a ranch in Colorado. <laughs> just no no buildings of any kind for four miles in any direction. And, you know, it's it's so hard to imagine now. And then uh, Bel Air, the first version of Bel you know, Bel Air originally, he was going to have holes where the front nine is and then holes south of where the front nine is, which is the UCLA campus. And just as they were starting to... Get the project finally planned out and go ahead and do it. the The landowner said, "No, no, no. I, well, I gave some of that land to to them to build a university, <laughs> so so we don't have that anymore." So, you know, for a while they didn't know if they had enough land to build eighteen holes, and then he found another canyon and said, "Oh, yeah, we'll we'll use that canyon there." Um, so. It was the Wild West of golf course design, and he was, you know, in on the ground floor and, you know, had his chance to pick from some of the best topography in the West and build three great golf courses that still exist and a handful of others that have been badly abused or wiped out completely for other development. But... L.A. Country Club and Bel Air and Riviera are still revered as some of the best golf courses in the United States. So with um, the guys they started with in Philadelphia, Tillinghast, William Flynn, Hugh Wilson, and you look at the resume of courses, and these are some of the courses that have best stood the test of time. What would you attribute that to? I think they had really good foresight in planning them and and 
to some degree and given them enough space that they didn't become obsolete as the game grew. They weren't so tight together that they were a safety issue or a liability issue and the you weren't hitting it out onto the street and they had to change the whole thing and then they didn't have enough land to change the whole thing. So, you know, that's the golf course that becomes a mall <laughs> instead of staying a golf course. You know, some of the golden age thing is, I think the reason we revere all those courses from that certain time is there's no question when they built the courses, they were building them for the really good amateur player. They didn't think so much about pro golf in 1920. They thought about the really good amateur player, which was Bobby Jones, but it was also themselves. I mean, all these guys we're talking about were really good players and playing U.S. amateurs and whatever else. And the funny thing is, at that time, to build a really good golf course for a top-flight amateur, you, you would build a 6,500-yard golf course. And today, those 6,500-yard tees are the tees that appeal to guys that are interested in golf but aren't scratch players. They're the 5 or 10 handicappers that love golf and support golf financially. And there's a lot more of them than there are scratch players. So, so now all these older courses that were built for scratch players are really popular golf courses for a much bigger mass of people than would have appreciated them. And, you know, they'd have been way too hard for the 10 handicappers in 1920, but they work just great for them now. So a Thomas question that we got from Stephen Britton, he asks in George Thomas's book, Golf, golf architecture in America, he mentions a typical course should set up as follows. Two par fives, one reachable and two, and the other not reachable and two. Five par threes, ranging from long wood to wedge. 11 par fours, four long holes, four medium holes, three short holes, which would be driver chip. He says, this seems like a really fun setup to me. Have you taken any of that idea into your own design? I don't have, I don't have a, that much of a formula in mind. I mean, I, I have a broader range of, I don't care if par works out to 70 or 72. You know, it's kind of like, what's, what's, what's happening when I fit this together? I know if I build a, you know, if I, if I do a routing and it's par 68, no, the client's not going to like that. I'm going to have to <laughs> go work on that some more. But, but other than that, I'm not as, you know, like I've built out of 35 golf courses, I've built maybe seven or eight that had more than four par threes. Like Thomas said, he would build five par threes. So I'm not opposed to that, but I'm not looking to do it either. Um, and, and the funny thing is, I don't think like George Thomas didn't necessarily feel entirely responsible to follow his own guidelines. Bel Air does have five par threes. It has three par fives to make up for it, so it's still a par 70 golf course. Do those numbers, sorry, Brian, those only add up to 16 holes, though. 11 par fours, three par threes, and two par no, fives. Five no, par it, threes. it adds up, five to par, par three. Adds up to par 69, though. Okay. Yeah, it okay. added up to par 69 if, yeah. you read, if you read closely. And, and he didn't actually build any par 69 golf courses. Maybe that's a, uh, you know, a, a flaw. Like, <laughs> it's supposed to be par 69 more places. Well, one of the things that he did believe 
pretty strongly. And you only have to go look at these three golf courses, Bel Air and LA Country Club and and Riviera to see it. Is the first two holes are they're either both par fives or one's a par five and one's a really long par four that was probably a par five in the day. And you know, it's just it's four seventy, so now they call it a par four. So he started out with two long holes on all of his best courses. And, you know, he talked about the first hole especially, you know, he thought in terms of match play. So he thought of the first hole as the first hole and potentially the 19th hole. So he described the first hole as being like, it's a par five for the first time around. And you want to make birdie on it, but it's a comfortable par five. But if you get back around and you're all square in the match at the end, now somebody's got to make four on this hole. You know, if you don't make four, you're probably going to lose. So, you know, that was very strong in his thinking. And, and all three of these courses start out the same way. The, the holes aren't exactly the same. But you do, you have the par five right out of the blocks, and it's a fairly short par five. And then the next hole is a bear of a par four. Unless the USGA comes in and changes it to a four, <laughs> like they did at the USAM this year. But that's another subject for another day. Ben Vanna wants to know, why did George Thomas build so few golf courses? He built a little more than people think, and they're gone. You know, I think he probably built uh, 12 or 15 golf courses in Southern California, and there's only like six or eight of them left now. Um, You know, and some of them are the munis that are, you can barely tell who designed them or that there was any design quality in them at all because so little of it's left. Um, but I think he did so few because he didn't, I, I mean, I, I don't know his biography well enough to know. I've, I've read Jeff Shackelford's biography, but it's been a while since I really read all the personal stuff. He didn't travel very far. So he didn't, you know, he wasn't like McKenzie working all over the globe and spending three days on somewhere and then going away and never seeing it again. I mean, what he did do was close to home and he stuck around and spent time on it, which is part of the reason they all turned out so good. But so, but he worked in a fairly limited area and really only from 1920 to he died in 1932. So he didn't have that long of an active career. He, I think I remember reading that he was really like his family was really wealthy too. So it wasn't like a business kind of like McDonald's. You didn't need to do design for a business. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, Jordan Benson wants to know how did the Bel Air job come about? Uh, that's an interesting story. I was, I was doing an interview for, uh, the, the second volume of the confidential guide that covers, you know, all the California courses as part of the Americas, but you know, the places that you can play in the winter. So California is part of that. And I think it was with Rand Morissette from golf club Atlas. I can't remember for sure. Uh, but somebody asked me, so if you could renovate any one of the golf courses in this book, what one would you do? And, you know, I've learned over the years, don't, don't answer those questions. Cause because somebody's the consultant there now, and they're not going to appreciate it very much. And and I'm not really, I don't campaign for work. I mean, you know, we consult a lot of places, 
we get a lot of calls about consulting. So I don't think I want to consult there. I want to poach that job away from whoever's there. I never try to do that. Um, but because it was a friend asking me the question, I just blurted out Bel Air. You know, I just, it's one of the coolest routings that I've ever seen. And it just seems like it's a mess now. And I don't understand the direction that they're going. And I said that absolutely not thinking that I was, they were going to call me about it. Because I didn't think I knew anybody here. I had only played the golf course twice and not for 15 or 20 years. And I, as far as I knew, I didn't know any members. In fact, I knew two members on the Green Committee. And the next Green Committee meeting, they both took that interview and plopped it down on the desk and said, why aren't we talking to this guy? You know, we're getting ready to do a bunch of work on the golf course and we've been doing work on it for years and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Let's get a second opinion. So they asked me to come out and play golf with them and just give them perspective on what they were doing and what I thought. And, you know, Eric came out with me and I, I played. That's one of the worst rounds of golf I played in a long time. I sure didn't get the job because I impressed him with my playing ability. I, I don't think I made any pars all day. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we went back in after we were done playing and sat down. And uh, they asked me, well, what do you think of the golf course? And I said, I just don't understand. You talk so much about George Thomas. And everybody thinks of it as one of his best golf courses. And, and yet, the most famous holes have been gone for 50 years. The, everybody talks about the May West hole. And you blew that up in 1962. You know, and, and there's, you know, there's an aerial photo on the wall right behind you of what this golf course looked like when George Thomas built it. And it doesn't look anything like that now. And I don't understand why you're not, <laughs> what direction you're trying to go besides that one. And I had to tell that story to a few more people a few more times, but that's basically how we wound up working. So you mentioned the routing and being one of the most spectacular routings. We talked about, you know, routing in the last episode and, and um, you're writing a book about routing. So what about Bel Air's routing is so impressive? Well, there's, there's a lot of nuance to it that I don't really have time to get into in that much detail. But just, just the general description of how this golf course works. I mean, there is nothing else like it in the world anywhere. You know, and I, I don't really understand exactly why because it's been here for 90 years and and a lot of people have seen it. Somebody could have tried to do some of these things, and nobody really has. So, so it starts out, you know, the clubhouse is on a ridge. And the first tee is right out the clubhouse porch, basically. And you're looking down into Los Angeles, and you play down the hill, par 5, going straight toward UCLA. And a big, broad area. And then you go back. The second hole kind of winds back into a narrow area and the, and you know, by the time you get to the, the third is like a narrow little par three hole in a canyon. And when you get to the fifth green, another par three, you're in the end of a canyon. And you're like, where am I going? I don't see another hole. And, you know, behind the green on the right, there's a tunnel. And you either walk or take your golf cart 
through the tightest tunnel that you can possibly imagine because they designed a golf cart around fitting through the tunnels at Bel Air. Um, and you tunnel under this ridge for like 150 yards or something like that. It's a long tunnel. And you come out in a valley on the other side and, oh, there's another golf hole. There's actually two, six and seven. And then you work back up to the, to the ninth green and now you're in another canyon and the clubhouse is right there and there's no place to go again. And this one's really tight. I mean, there's like barely room for a green in the canyon and there's nowhere else to go. You're like, okay, oh, there's another tunnel. And you go into the tunnel and you go halfway through the tunnel. You take an elevator up into the clubhouse you can walk out the door and you're on the 10th tee hitting over another canyon on the other side of the clubhouse with a suspension bridge from high to high to get you over to the other side. There is nothing else. I can tell you, you know, Eric and I have seen a lot of crazy things built in Japan and Korea where they spent hundreds of millions of dollars putting a golf course in canyons in the mountains. They never did anything like that. Never even thought of it. It's a, it goes back to the story you said earlier about Thomas's background is how they just found another canyon and they said, oh, we can build a golf course. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the story of the routing is that he thought he was stuck and didn't have a way, you know, he didn't have enough land. And they had never looked where the back nine was. Um, and then when he thought he was stuck, he was up there with Billy Bell. And, and actually, there was, you know, there was a third co-designer at Bel Air for a little bit. I can't tell how much he actually had to do with it. Who was another great amateur player in California, Jack Neville, the guy who designed Pebble Beach or gets cr the credit for designing Pebble Beach, was involved at Bel Air too. And they were all standing on the ridge where the clubhouse is. And Thomas said, you think you could play like over, you know, hit across this canyon and play to a green up there and they they tried with whatever they had around to hit a ball and they were like yeah i think that'll work and so they went over there and then they looked from you know now you have to go across a road to the 11th tee but you didn't back then and you know once you get just over that ridge where 10 green is there is that great valley where 11 through 16 are and they never really looked up in there at all and that valley is really tight like it's by by the standards we use to lay out golf courses now, it's not wide enough to have a hole going up and a hole coming back in that valley. But they got them in there, and it works just fine. We're going to kick this to the to the crew, the guys living on site, and we talked about in the previous part about how you guys really become students of the architect when you're doing restorations and. Your job becomes knowing all this stuff. So what are some of the interesting facts or concepts or principles that you've kind of learned since being here or uncovered during the restoration with Thomas and Bel Air? Eric, you want to go first? Sure. Um, the one thing I think we've all kind of marveled at as we've worked on some of the holes that uh, had been more undone over the years than others. You know, some of them are just you maybe a different bunker configuration around the green and modified the green a little bit where others, the green had been moved, you know, 30, 45 yards, like the fifth. 
you know, and we just got done kind of putting the landforms back together as we kind of piece that together through the photographs and kind of the evidence that's in the ground and just how well everything instantly ties in, falls into place and just fits without really us trying that hard or thinking, wow, we got to just like dream up this old fifth hole based on a couple of photographs. There's really not as many ground level photographs photographs as we would like to have. We have a couple of good ones of that hole, but it's like, well, you know, you, you kind of piece together the evidence from the map. It's like, well, the back edge has to be about here. It's this many feet long, this many feet wide. It looks like it, you know, the back of the right bunker tied in off of this ridge. And you just kind of start filling in all the blanks with the things that you know. And and it's like, man, yep, that's a hole. That looks pretty good. That's going to be, that's got to be pretty close to, to what it was because it fits so well, you know. Um, and one more thing about that hole, in addition to fitting so well on every other level, they moved that green in the 60s, I guess, when they did all the other work. To, they lengthened the par three. They moved the green like back 35 yards and put it you know, up against the wall of the canyon further back. So they took the old green at, you know, they cut the old green away because you couldn't see the new green so well without cutting out in front of it. That's why we had to put it back. But um, one of the things that it prevented when, when I got here, you know, this, the superintendent, Brian Sullivan, had been here for like 25 years. And he tried to convince them to redo the green, rebuild the greens. And, you know, they're, they're all, they were all Poeana greens. And he wanted, you know, the club was like, we should put new bent grass greens out there. At least do that. And Brian said, but I got one problem. I can't grow bent grass on the fifth green where it is now. Because it's, it's back up against the canyon and it doesn't get enough sunlight in the winter. And I just, you know, I could plant bent grass on it, but it'll fail. It'll just be Poa again. And it would have been hard to convince the club to go to restore this much shorter par three if I didn't know that it was also out in the sun where they could grow bent grass. So not only did it fit in every other level, you could actually grow grass on it, which apparently the guy that redid it in the 60s didn't think about or care about as much. Blake, what have you uh, picked up? Well, I had obviously heard of George Thomas, had read his book, Golf Architecture in America, and I'd seen a few holes at Riviera on one of my previous stints in Southern California, but honestly didn't know his golf courses or his style intimately before coming here. So I was working at a job in Mexico when Eric asked if I would want to help out here. So I ordered the captain, Jeff Shackelford's book, about George Thomas and had my girlfriend bring it and golf architecture in America down to Mexico. So I could just brush up on any information. Eric shared with me on Dropbox, all the info that they had. So it was just a matter of learning about the place and what Bel Air is and the things that didn't really stick with me then. But now that we're doing the work is a lot of these bunkers are removed from the greens more than we would probably do on a new course. Um, the right bunker on 11 green is probably 20 feet from 
20 feet from the green, which you, you just wouldn't think to do. And there's a handful of other examples like that. And the other thing he did in his drawings, in his book, he had a lot of fairway behind the greens. Um, that was a place where he encouraged people to miss was through the green or be long. And you may have a chip that's 4% running away from you, but you're not in a bunker and you're, you're on short grass. So seeing those two things sort of come to light once we got into the ground was cool. And following up on that, kind of the observation about the bunkers in a lot of cases being far from the green, not all of them, some of them ate in pretty close, but that, and that's a big pitfall of like really judging anything based on photographs. And that's more, that rings more true today than at any other time that anybody's gave a crap about golf course architecture is when you start putting all the pieces together and and how what seemed like a fairly benign contour all of a sudden makes all the difference in the world. Like all the, the photo evidence was pretty clear that the bunker that Blake referred to that's well off the green on the 11th, well, there's a pretty good contour between the bunker and the green and it's not a deep green at all. And if you, you know, if you play safely right off the tee, the green is shallower yet and you kind of need to land it near the front edge and that's where that little contour is. So even though the the sand is 20 yards away from the green, it's just, it's four or five feet away from the green where if you don't carry that pretty good likelihood of rolling down into the bunker. I think that's something that the average golfer doesn't understand is it's not just the hazard or the bunker in this case, but it's the contours on the other side of the hazard that really also have a huge effect on the strategy of the hole is I, on that hole playing left, you all of a sudden have a really nice, like almost a kicker slope to just run it in there to that shallow green. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think a lot of times the strategy gets kind of analyzed and really black and white terms as opposed to, you know, I think one of the things we all appreciate working for Tom is I think not to put words in his mouth, but I think we work more in shades of gray, like may, you know, it shouldn't be just a flashing neon light, which where you should go every day. You know, it's like that green sits lengthwise if you do go left, but that's also a deep, nasty bunker in front of it. And that one does cut into the green. So even though, you know, it depends on the person, it depends on the day, you know, do you like that depth of the green on that angle and carrying the bunker comfortably? Or would you rather kind of have a little bit more of a, a, of an approach that's, you know, you don't have to flirt with any bunkers, but it's a little shallower. So, you know, it's not a cut and dry gain a huge advantage by going here. It, it varies day to day whole locations and who's playing. So that's, that's a really cool part of it. Yeah. It's not the best strategy is not the same for everybody. And you get, there's so many modern holes that you, they'll give you two options from the T, but there's the one option that requires a carry that most people can't make. And that's the one that gives you the easier approach shot. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, the guy who could bomb it over everything and hit wedge to the green, he gets the good angle. And then the 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 97% of people that can't do that and have to play out to the one side, they have a really tough angle to the green. And if they can't hit a high foreign with a fade, they can't hold the green. As something I've noticed with your courses is if you take the aggressive line, you don't always have the, the, you have to choose whether you want the better angle or the shorter shot in. Yes. That's a Pete Dye thing. I learned from him. <laughs> Brian, you guys are touching on one of my favorite things about Thomas and that it, it goes back to his book again. That, you know, one of the things I love about that book are his sketches and, you know, there are a lot of sketches of the work he'd done himself, but he's also got these theoretical hypothetical sketches of these wild you know multiple root alternate fairway holes that are oftentimes really tough to put into practice but he had landscapes here that were suited to that with the barrancas at riviera and la and there's some of that at bel-air and that's you know the work that's being done now at bel-air on holes like the 11th which you just talked about where you know eric mentioned you, know, you play out to the right side and you've got a shallow target. But when you stand on the tee, that right side is what you see. So it's really comfortable just to play straight away from the tee, but you're going to leave yourself a tougher angle. You know, To get to the left side, which you mentioned, Andy, is blind over some trees, over a hill, and you're, you know, there's a little bit of trouble down the left if you pull it. But taking that risk, you're opening up a better angle into the length of the green if you're more comfortable with that. And the sixth hole is another one six and seven where some trees have been removed and coming down the hill in the seventh, the green has been restored and it's almost a guitar pick shaped green kind of triangular on the top of the hill where the hole can be tucked back left or back right. And, you know, an arroyo is going to be restored down the center of the hole where you can play left or right of that and use these big hillsides on either side to find your angle to get at either of those back corners off the tee. And, you know, those alternate root, alternate fairway holes are something that I always think about with his work. And there aren't many of them. Riviera's got a few, LA's got a few, and Bel Air's got a few. But I think they're fascinating in that he took these theoretical, really complex, multiple option holes, and he found ways to adapt that into the landscape he was working with here. It would be like aid at Riviera for people that might know the, the Riviera more because it's on TV every year. Yep. Kai, uh, it's more of a defined choice on that one. You're like one side or the other. Yeah. Um, as we've been talking through this, I'm getting a little nostalgic because this is reminding me of kind of how I ended up here in the first place. 1997, I was doing some of my own work. I had done a few golf courses on my own. I was very fortunate at the time. I was young, but there was a lot of work going on. I was maybe building four or 500 courses a year, and they'd hire some young punk like me to do it. I was sitting in my house. I ordered the captain from, from Jeff Shackelford. I got it in the mail. I'm, it was snowing in St. Louis in February. I'm, look, I read the book in one night. And I was like, this is really interesting. I just wasn't, hadn't been exposed to any of that kind of stuff. And I literally got in my car the next morning and drove to California. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going out there. But now I did look. The tournament was at Riviera coming up that week. And I was like, I can get out there. I'm going to go check that place out. So I drove out here. I went to Riviera for four days and just looked at that golf course. And I was kind of like, holy crap, this is like, I'm just, my, my mind was sort of just absorbing like a sponge as architecture. And I tried to actually come to Bel Air 
and they wouldn't let me in the gate. <laughs> so I didn't get to see it. I saw a few holes through the fence. And after that, I ended up driving up to Cyprus. I had read the uh, Spirit of St. Andrews as well. And so I ended up driving up to Pebble Beach. And I went to Cypress Point, went to Pebble Beach, and looked at all that stuff. And at the time I was at Pebble Beach, I was in a golf shop, and the guy had golf architecture in America. And I spent $850 on a book. And unfortunately, it came out the next year, a reprint for 50 bucks. <laughs> so I, that wasn't a real good investment. But anyway, I read... I ended up reading that book as well and that same trip, and that was in 97, and that spring I finished up a golf course I was working on, and nine months later I was working for Tom at Apache Stronghold. So George Thomas and this place and his work had a huge impact on what of getting me really into architecture and getting me out of my little comfort zone and getting into a better architecture working with Tom. Did your work change then after that Absolutely. experience? Absolutely. I was already, what? at the time, I knew I needed, I was thinking different things. And I, re, I read Tom's Anatomy of the Golf Course. And I was thinking different things. I was working with my dad. And I knew I was like, I'm not really on the same page. I got to do something different. Well, and What was the worst thing that you were doing before that trip that you immediately ceased? You know, I didn't wasn't doing anything terrible. I was learning as I was what going. What are the names of all these courses that you were doing on your own that we never hear about? <laughs> one's called Indian Springs. It's in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. One's been changed, but there's a few others. I'm not going to mention their names. <laughs> but I'm trying to think what I was doing that I learned. You know, I think it was just less scale less willingness to be bold you know you kind of were doing just oh we don't want to do too much and that's kind of crazy and let's just kind of keep it simple i don't know and that's actually one of the things we've talked about a lot of things that you've learned from this golf course and everybody's already kind of nailed the really key points but one thing also is there's not a lot of bunkers here but the scale is just humongous the bunkers are just giant and they were not afraid to Go for it. The contractors here, these guys have been building a lot of golf courses. And a couple of the bunkers we built, Blake and I were driving by the, a bunch of the crew this morning who were fixing some of the erosion from the rain. And they're like, I have never seen a bunker like that one on number seven. And they've been building golf courses for a long time. And this, you know, this bunker is from 1925. And they've never seen anything like it. That is a massive bunker. We got a question from Owen Calvin Smith, who actually wrote the Bel Air right up on my website and uh, he's a golfer at USC and he has a question about the eighth hole. So in the restoration, do you think replacing the pond left with original bunkering will make the hole more playable for most golfers, but also make the hole less risk reward for better golfers? We should point out before we answer this question that Owen plays for USC and Bel Air is home of the UCLA golf team. So there's probably some rivalry going on here. He, he loves <laughs> Bel Air, though. Okay, good. Good for him. <laughs> and she shouldn't tell his coach. <laughs> well, one of the, the, the most controversial thing about restoring the golf course was that there were two ponds that had been added to the golf course in the 1970s not even they, they weren't adding the dick wilson renovation they were added later 
on the third hole, a par three, and the eighth hole, a short par five. And, you know, my attitude toward them was George Thomas didn't build ponds. George Thomas wouldn't want an artificial pond with a bunch of Japanese goldfish in it and, and fake rock landscaping right next to a green. That would just not... He's probably spinning in his grave thinking about that right now. <laughs> so those ponds need to go. But now the third hole I didn't think would be controversial at all because there was a huge dynamic George Thomas bunker there originally, and we could put that back just as easily. So why would they really want the pond? And it turned out I was wrong. We still had to fight pretty hard about that one. The eighth hole, I understood completely exactly this question that most good players were going to think of that as, well, you're taking out the one really scary hazard on this short par five that's otherwise going to be a really easy hole for us. And that will take, you know, I don't like that term risk reward that he used. Everything in golf is risk reward, you know, but, but you're taking out the scary hazard that makes us think twice about going for the green. And if you don't have it, we're just going for it all the time. And, you know, he phrases it a little wrong there. He says there's, you, you're going to put back a bunker left of the green. Thomas's bunker was short of the green on the left. And to the left, playing downhill, and all the fairway is draining down the hill. And then right in front of the green, it goes behind this bunker that's short left and down into the start of this little arroyo that goes alongside the left of the green and down across the first fairway and connects into the arroyo that drains down between the 18th hole and the first hole. So there, I mean, it was all part of this old drainage network. So, so the arroyo will be like almost like a, like a native type area. Not a, a native area? type. You know, we're, we can't, we've decided we can't like, I mean, it started out as it's a drainage way. And it's certainly not a good place to be. If you hit it down in there, you're in the rough. You could have any old kind of lie possible. You know, it's not like hitting it into a pristine bunker that you could just get up and down from. It's you know, it could, go, it could go bad, too. So, you know, so we think that this, the, the whole now is, you know, you're taking a chance going over there, but you don't know how much. But, but we're going to, you know, you're going to have to take the chance because you can't. You're going to look like, you know, now a, a golfer like your friend, he he's so long, he just is hitting the mid iron or short iron in there all the time. So it's, it was the old hole wasn't that risk reward for him. I will say, though, that that feature, I, I talk the course I play the most in Chicago. We have a short par five and it's got two giant trees, right? That frame kind of the green and. If I'm not right in the middle of the fairway, I like if I had a good drive, I've got a mid iron to even some days a wedge. Right. But like if I'm not right in the middle of the fairway, I never go for it. I lay it out okay. and I, I have a lob wedge in, you know, every time. It's easy. It's like I always have been like, those trees aren't there. They deserve to get, like, take them out, take them out. And they're like, it'll make it easier. But it doesn't make it easier because when I'm in trouble and I, then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm going to go for it. And then there's all these big bunker, like greenside bunkers around. And if you end up in the back left bunker, which n nobody can get to except for yeah. somebody like me who can hit it over the trees, 
That's the worst place. Like, you'll make six on a par five from the back bunker in two because you'll hit it, and you can't keep it on the green. So by opening up the hole, it entices more people to go for it, yes. and more people get in trouble. And more people get in trouble. And, you, you know, you said the key thing. That question, the question we get the most often in renovation is, isn't that going to make the hole easier? You know, you get it about everything you do. If you expand the green back to all the little corners it had, well, you've made the green bigger. Is, didn't that make the hole easier? And no, because the pin isn't always in the center of the green. <laughs> um, if you take out a tree, well, that's making the hole easier. Now there's not a tree in my way. Yeah, but now you're going to try to hit a hit a five iron in the green out of the rough and make 10 instead of just punching it back to the fairway and, and hitting the green in three. Uh, you know, this eighth hole that we're talking about. Yeah. Now the good players, they have to go for it. They're the other guy's going to go for it. It's short enough. They have to go for it, but they could still get themselves in trouble. You don't want to miss that green, right? Playing, you know, chipping off the hill to a green, draining the other way toward the, toward the Barranca. They had to make the green. They made the green flatter when they built the pond. So if you missed right, you wouldn't chip into the water. Although I guess when they got the green really fast in the, in the amateur or the walker, in the amateur qualifying rounds, there were some guys that chipped into the water because it was that fast. <laughs> uh, but, yes, you know, yeah. you don't want to miss right, and you don't want to miss down in this branca on the left. And if you think you've got to go for it, it's not going to be an easy hole. It's not going to be like, oh, I hit it in the water and ruined my day. But it's still, people will make six on it and be doubly mad because they think it's an easy hole now. And they should always make four or five. See, I think that's like one of the best parts about golf is like when you walk off a green and you're like, how the hell did I just bogey this hole? Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, but then the other side of that is nobody's going to make nine anymore. The, the poor members that hit two balls in the pond, mm-hmm. that kind of goes away. I guess they can still, they can make a mess from the left too. <laughs> I'm underestimating them, but, but it should, you know, that kind of stuff shouldn't happen as much. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.